Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hi, I'm Bob Trump, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. I'm here with my co-director, Mike Murphy, for our last bully pulpit of the semester, an unscheduled one on Bob Dole. It's called Bob Dole Remembered. Mitchell, Mike Pettit is our guest. He served as an administrative assistant, chief of staff, presidential campaign advisor for Senator Dole. He's a former board member of the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas, and he's just returned from the service on Capitol Hill, where Senator Dole has been lying in state. I think I, I want to begin, as the Democrat on this panel, with a kind of personal remnant. In the 1972 campaign, where I was George McGovern's speechwriter, there was no fiercer critic of McGovern than Robert Dole, who was chairman of the Republican National Committee, as well as being a senator. And what struck me was that two or three years later, in the 1970s, they were working closely together to save and expand food stamps, to pass all sorts of federal nutrition programs. I was the staff director and chief counsel of the Senate Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs, and worked with Senator Dole, alongside Senator McGovern, and he was conservative without question, but he was also compassionate, and for him, it wasn't just a slogan. I remember in 1976, when he was the vice presidential nominee with Gerald Ford, and he was receiving a lot of criticism, I wrote a column called Dole's Other Side that said, this is a complex person. Sure, he's a tough politician, and he's an effective one. But he's also someone who, after the war, when he was wounded, was in a full body cast, laid in a hospital for, Mike would know exactly how long, but I think for a year or more. 39 months. Yeah. Yeah. The 39 months, it was something else. And I think he came out of that experience with some real empathy for people who were not in an easy situation, for people who were challenged, either in terms of hunger In terms of disabilities, he played a role in the Americans with Disabilities Act or in voting rights, where he played a critical role alongside Ted Kennedy in 1982 in renewing the Voting Rights Act, despite the opposition, by the way, of a young Justice Department official named John Roberts, who is now the Chief Justice of the United States. So he was a tough partisan, but he had that other side. And I guess I maybe I'll throw this to either Mike or Mike. Is that era of American politics, when we look around us today, is that gone? Is it just behind us? I'll comment briefly. In fact, that was really the undertone of the funeral today, that we not only lost a great hero, but maybe the passing of an era, and how do we get it back? And uh, all of the things you said, Bob, about the life experiences of Bob Dole and how they contributed to a certain way of looking at the world and certainly being empathetic towards, as you mentioned, the uh, Americans for Disabilities Act and food stamps, nutrition programs and voting rights and all of those things. President Biden did actually a brilliant job of tying all that together today. And I 
I, I really give him great kudos. I think he summarized Bob Dole eloquently and, and uh, you know, did, did a really nice job of, 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 of kind of saying we need to get this back in the country. Yeah, you know, heroes like Dole, the, the last favor they do us is when they pass, there's a celebration and a remembrance, and it, it can inspire people. I mean, I was watching on television. I couldn't get there today, which bothers me because I wanted to be at the funeral. And he, uh, I looked at the crowd. He even saw, of all things, Ted Cruz and Amy Klobuchar sitting together amiably chatting on television. Now, I'm sure Twitter will explode with hatred and rage about it. But fundamentally, we need a lot more of that. And, and th- that moment is gone right now, but it doesn't have to be gone forever. I mean, the highest compliment, I think, I could give a doll. I worked for him twice, by the way, by way of background. I'm I'm so old. Mike and I go back in Dole World. I was with him in 87 in his first and 88, his first presidential primary campaign. And then I worked on the general election team for him in 96. Got to know him pretty well, have tremendous respect for him. It was one of my favorites uh, in a career where I got to work for a lot of interesting people. But he Dole was a practical politician. And, you know, everybody says politician is a bad thing. Well, the root of the word, the real meaning is somebody who practices politics, you know, hopefully as a way to bring people together to find a compromise and move the ball forward. And Dole was, as a Kansan and as with his background, was eminently practical. It was not about some grand ideological vision or fighting for the sake of ideological visions. He was a conservative, uh, but he was a patriot. And I, I always thought the secret nickname he ought to have, having in Mike, you were at a, a right hand seat to all this, but I, he always reminded me when I, when I would hang around a little bit in the Senate and watch him operate the other senators, it was kind of like Sarge Dole, because it was like, <laughs> all right, we got to get this darn thing done. You put the newspaper down. Come on, go. How many? Well, we got to get them. And don't have the votes. You don't have a bill. Chop, chop, chop. You know, and it was kind of that in charge guy taking care of everybody, but he was about getting to the next thing accomplishing something and working through the politics of it. And that is a skill we could use a hell of a lot more of today. As you know, Mike, we filmed some stuff in the last year of his life. And part of that included just asking him, what did he want to talk about? What did he, what did he want to be remembered for? And he always went back to the fact that when he started in the Kansas legislature in 1951, uh, he had become a Republican, not necessarily because he was a Republican. His parents were New Deal Democrats and he kind of looked around in the county and said, oh, you know what? There are more Republicans here. I think I'm a Republican. But he, went to, he went to Topeka and joined the legislature. And, they, and a reporter asked him on his first day, what are you going to do while you're here? What's your agenda? You're kind of a young man right out of the war. And he goes, well, I think I'm going to sit around for a couple of days. I'm going to watch and I'm going to, I'm going to listen. And then I'm going to stand up and I'm going to do what's right. And for him, doing what's right always meant executing and getting to a solution. And he said, you can't get to solutions most of the time if you don't work across the aisle. Uh, the way in, And, you know, he worked in the Senate for a lot of years when they had 38, 39 Republican senators. And, and if you wanted to do anything, you had to find, you had to build bridges and work across the aisle. And, and that was a natural for him. And, you know, the nutrition program that you talked about, Bob, and you, you played such a role in, uh, he was a skeptic about that. And they went to field hearing, out on field hearings I think it was 73. And Dole said, you know what? He, they're right. And George is right about this. And I, I, have, a, I have a great story that I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have told you, but traveling around with Dole in the early 80s, we would run into people 
that would say always harsh things about, you know, just, just as they say to politicians. And some guy came up and said, well, we finally got rid of that George McGovern. I mean, he was a communist and all that stuff. And Dole stopped and he said, don't ever talk about that man that way. He was a hero in World War II. He flew B-24s. He was one of the great leaders. We disagreed about policy and we didn't always do the right thing, but we also agreed on a lot of things. Don't, don't ever say that again in my presence. I, I was really impressed. I was a young kid. And it was just starting to travel with him a little bit on the campaign. So, well, they had a real personal relationship that came out of that legislative process, um, right? Yeah, and the Greatest Generation stuff. I mean, these right. guys who'd been to war, regardless of party, knew that in a foxhole you weren't debating about your partisan point of view, right. and it, it bound them together. And it's a huge loss that they've left politics now. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the great challenge is. How do we overcome polarization that is so profound that if you, for example, were to do what Bob Dole did with George McGovern back in the 1970s today, you'd probably be primary in the next Republican primary. And so it makes it very difficult to move the ball forward. Well, I think it does. And I think, you know, people, people today, there's a lot of news about you know, the former president, you know, going after everybody, if they do anything, if they, you know, if you congratulate somebody for winning an election and you're Netanyahu, you know, you're on his bad list and all that. Uh, you know, the fun thing about these funerals is you get there a couple hours early to talk to all kinds of people and you catch up. And I talked to one former, you'll figure this out, he's former senator, now governor of a Midwestern state. And we talked about politics for a long time. And and I asked him if they were, you know, doing all the voter suppression stuff in his state and all that. He said, well, not exactly and all that. And, and he, he just turned to me and he said, what are we going to have to do to make this better? And, and I said, uh, I don't know. Somebody said last week that it's a fever and the fever has to break. So, you know, that's kind of, he said, well, that's a great way to put it. It hasn't broken where I live. So Yeah, yeah it, it's funny. With digital media and the cable television, in, 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 the, in, the, in Dole's day, you put on your political show out publicly, and then privately you'd get to work. And you had a lot of relationships across the aisle and friendship and all that. But now that it's so ubiquitous, every elected has to act like a furious primary voters at all times and all places. And I, I find, and nobody ever believes this, but you've both lived inside politics, most of the personalities that get into politics are kind of gregarious people, kind of want to get along. And I think a lot of them feel trapped in this system uh, where they are afraid to be seen together because Fox News will go beat them up or the, you know, the squad will be after them or whatever it might be. Um, and I think, it's, I think there is an internal fatigue, but they don't know how to work around their, their primary voters. And, uh, it, I, I, but I did see a little of that in the crowd today. And, and Mike, you were there. T- tell us a little bit about what it felt like to be there. Um, you know, uh, it, I'm sure you saw a lot of our old friends from Dole World and everything. I saw a bunch on TV. Uh, give, give us your impressions. Yeah, there. really, you know, anybody that's been to the, to the National Cathedral knows it's a majestic place anyway. And for a service like that with, you know, former President Clinton coming in and sitting there and greeting everybody, and you, you, you kind of know it's going to be a big day and a special day. And you know, Elizabeth probably organized this funeral quite a while ago, and and it was a, a full production. But it really was it, it was just magical. You know, you when a 
when a person that's your that's a hero dies, you're sad that he died. And then you then the rational part of your brain says, well, you know, he, he did live 98 years years on this planet. He did a lot of good and he died peacefully. So we're happy about that. Um, but the the consistent reflections on his life and, and what it meant uh, for all of us and for a generation, you know, when you took when when President Biden was talking about his war wounds, of course, I know the story forwards and backwards, but still it got to me to remember this poor guy that was wounded on the battlefield 16 days before the end of World War II, getting ready to finish up his service and go to go to Rome to work in a physical education program that the army had going and he was all excited and all they got to do is get over one last mountain and then they're going in the south they're going into berlin and he's shot and he lays on the battlefield for nine hours he can't move his arms or legs or anything and how that played out for the rest of his life and you know as his his disabilities i mean people people don't stop to think when he when he gets up in the morning and he gets dressed he didn't just pop out of bed and put on his pants and put on a shirt. It takes him 45 minutes to use a button hook to get his shirt on that, you know, he lived his life that way for 75 years. And, and then to be able to have that kind of productivity and, and do what he did in public life. And he had a lot of ups and, and he had some downs and he just always bounced back. He was this picture of resilience always. And, you know, his year to be president was 1988, probably not 96. That said, if, you know, we've talked a lot privately lately, you know, in the spring of 95, um, we had the Oklahoma City uh, tragedy and Clinton went down there and he was kind of the consoler in chief and all that. Then in the fall of 95, Newt Gingrich decided to close down the government. And but for those two things, the Republicans would have been doing really well in the polls headed into 1996. And, you know, Dole would have a fighting chance. He lost lost by eight points and he lost he lost in a big way. But 88 was really his year to be president. And and he, you know, as as Mike knows very well, and Bob does too, he, he came out of Iowa with a big head of steam. He won the caucus. Bush came in third place. They go to New Hampshire. And the daily tracking polls show that Dole's ahead every day of the week until Friday. And then Bush starts running these ads. Senators straddle. We thought they were unfair. And, and Dole could have been bitter about that. He probably was for a couple of days. And and what, but but he didn't certainly take it out on George Bush. He became his most loyal lieutenant in helping him pass legislation, and and that's kind of the way he viewed the world. He was a, uh, you know, you take your lumps and then you move on, and you honor the president of the United States and you support him where you can. Yeah, well, he. Yeah, I remember in New Hampshire after that occurred, that famous interview where he was on with Bush, and he said, "Stop lying about my record," and right. he got criticized for that. The right. truth was, Bush was lying about his record. Yeah. I want to return, Mike Pettit, to the fever you were talking about that makes it hard to do anything. I think it's a fever on both sides. I think it's worse myself among a lot of people who support Trump. But I saw it on Twitter because when Senator Dole died, I put out a couple of tweets that talked about what he was really like, at least in my limited experience with him. And they talked about food stamp programs, about the Americans with Disabilities Act, about working with Ted Kennedy. And I got bombarded by people from the left who said his record is unforgivable. He's no hero to anybody. I suppose these people weren't paying attention to what Joe Biden was saying either. But they weren't, obviously, today, but when Senator Dole died. And the big thing they attacked him for 
was that he had voted, said he had voted for Trump twice. Trump does seem kind of antithetical to what Bob Dole was. I assume the reason he did that was because he may have started out counting the number of people in Russell and around Russell who were Republicans and Democrats. But after all those years, I think he was deeply loyal to his party and couldn't see any way that he could break with it. Am I wrong? Well, let me interrupt for a minute just because I was involved a little bit in that. I, he was for Jeb in the primaries. You know, he he, he was not, and, and, and Mike can expand on this. He was a party lowly guy, but some of these older school Pauls, I think it is was almost inconceivable to them that once somebody got elected, the campaign BS wouldn't go away and they'd get serious because uh, they couldn't imagine a guy like Trump. And it turned out Trump wasn't just putting on a Rube show. That really was who he is. But but Mike, you know, best of us. Uh, well, what do you think his process was on that beyond being a loyal party guy, which was very you're true? Right. He, he supported Jeb Bush. Then he supported Rubio after Jeb kind of fell a little bit. And so Trump was his third choice. He thought I'm, I was the Republican nominee. I was the nominee of my party and I'm going to be loyal to my party and I'm going to vote for, for Trump. You know, there were certainly a lot of things that that campaign would like to have, have him do. They didn't do, but he did, he did support it. He did vote for him and he voted for him again. Uh, you know, he, he started to decide last spring that he wanted to say something, but not get in the middle of it. He said, I'm an old guy. Nobody cares what I say anymore. I said, Oh, I think they do. But he, he did say, you know, I've, I'm trumped out now. So that was kind of his code word. And I think, um, you know, to, to me, as I look at it, it, it's not really a big story that the former Republican nominee voted for uh, a, a Republican candidate. To me, the story is the friendship that Joe Biden and Bob Dole have. And and I was involved in it. I was at Dole's house when he and, and President Biden talked on the phone and made arrangements for Joe Biden to go see him off the record. No, no photography, no video, no, no nothing, just friends getting together. And there was a lot more of that that happened that neither one of them ever, ever talked about this year. To me, that's the story is even if you even if you say and, and Dole would say, I, you know, I'm worried that that, you know, Biden's going to be too liberal and some of these, you know, he's going to be in captive to the to the progressives to a degree that I don't like, but I love Joe Biden and we're friends. And, and and to me, if you have a friendship and a trust and all that, you can work things out and you can you can find common ground and you can move forward. So that that to me is a bigger, bigger story. You know, get getting back to Bob's angry Twitter followers, I think one thing that people who weren't around don't know that all Dole's staff will tell you and Dole's colleagues was he had that kind of tough public persona at times, but he had a tremendous amount of humanity. Never forgot where he's from. Here's a guy who, when he was county attorney, would have to personally sign the welfare checks to everybody in the county, including his grandparents. I mean, I got to tell my favorite Dole story, and I have a million of them, as, as you do, Mike. But in the 87 campaign, I'm a young punk media consultant, and they assigned me to make a biographical film about Dole. Now, like all Dole campaigns, the campaign was a little dysfunctional. And I rapidly learned that headquarters had a committee that wanted a camel. So I just stopped returning their calls. That would get me fired later. Uh, But I went out to Russell, Kansas in West Texas. And West Texas is not Dorothy, Kansas, really. It's a little more hard scrabble out there. So very You said West Texas. You mean West Kansas. Oh, no, I I misspoke. West Kansas, excuse me. To Russell, which is a beautiful little town with, with, with red brick streets. I'll never forget that. 
anyway, we did this film. And, and one of the big stories about Doles after he got wounded and came back from those times in the hospital, he was still in really bad shape. And they put a cigar box at Drawson's drugstore where Dole was the soda jerk, very popular. And people gave money because a pioneering surgeon in Chicago, Dr. Kalikian, had offered to do some revolutionary surgery on him because neither of his arms were functional. So anyway, long story, one farmer gave a duck, by the way, didn't have any money. Dole went up, seven operations, tough recovery, but it, but it happened. So anyway, I am sitting in Dole's office waiting to interview him to give his narrative story in this video. I have not spent a lot of time with him. I'm a huge admirer, but I don't know. He's running late because he's, you know, in the middle of running the Senate. And my ballpoint pen doesn't work, I notice, on my legal pad. And I'm like, this is going to be great. Bob Dole's going to come here. He's not a big time waster. And I'm going to be screwing around with a pen that doesn't work like an idiot. So, and this is the most ornate. You remember that big leader's office. So I figure I've got to steal a pen from the majority. So I go to the desk, look around, you know, nobody's there. And I open it up to find a pen I can borrow. And what do I find? I find the cigar box from Dawson's drugstore. Yeah. They're in the desk. He never forgot. And there's a famous clip of him with Ford in 76 when he goes back to Russell and he breaks down talking about it. And, you know, that people just, the politics now, everything's a caricature. But to know Bob Dole, uh, that that humanity and that understanding of people, because he had a very hard scramble life uh, uh, really motivated him. And I think he has that in common with Biden, by the way. Uh, they're both big hearted people. Well, that's just a lot about, you know, the, the world in, in the middle of America, in the middle of the last century, you know, a town of 2000 people and Bob, Bob Dole was the hero of the town. He was a three sport athlete, went to college, played three sports, voted most handsome guy in high school, all that kind of stuff. And when he came back from the war in that condition, he was humiliated. He wouldn't, he didn't even like going out in public for a while. He couldn't walk. And somebody came up to him in a drugstore or in a, in a cafe. And they came over and said to his dad, boy, I wish I would, I'll bet you wish they'd finished him off. And, you know, they just, people were crazy, but for the most part, the people of Russell, Kansas were, uh, like you said, they gave, they gave a nickel, they gave a duck, they did what they could to help defray his medical expenses. And, and to this day, I think, you know, for 98 years, he, or for, you know, the 75 years since, he draws strength when he, when he goes to Russell, and that's, that's where his feet hit the ground. So, I, I, it's, in fact, that's where his plane is on the way to right now, and he's going to go to Russell and, and say his lad, family say the last goodbyes there. I remember they all would call him Bob there. You know, I was yeah. used to the Washington thing. The leader is here. The leader is all, hey, Bob, why right. don't you idiots get something done about that green, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and he was totally comfortable in that environment. It was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing thing. Could you talk about his wit? Because he had this dry, acerbic wit that was really uh, quite extraordinary. I mean, literally, funniest guy day in and day out, hour in and hour out that I've ever been around in my life. Almost, I mean, if you were around him for three or four hours, you'd hear four or five of the funniest things, unscripted, plays on words, just whatever it, it could be. And, uh, he didn't practice it. He, he wasn't a very good joke teller per se, although he had, a, he had one or two really good jokes that he worked into his repertoire. But his humor really came from just zingers, you know, all, all day long. And he just had a funny, funny way of saying things. I, there are so many hundreds of them that it'd be hard to isolate a couple of them. But he really was funny. And I think, you know, there were a lot of 
when you're the leader of the party and you're trying to work out things late at night in, in the Senate, you know, I've heard from so many senators that he had not only was his humor great, but he knew when to use it and how to use it to diffuse uh, situations that had gotten a little bit more uh, or the atmospherics had gotten a little bit out of control. So that, that was part of his, his effectiveness as a leader. You know, like all good humor, it was based on truth and it was start to, and it was often a bit dark, particularly the insights. I'll never forget. My phone rang in the early nineties. I got to protect the innocent here. And there was a Republican Senator who was, I, I got to know him pretty well. Good guy, but was, uh, was a little difficult. And so, and nobody wanted to do the reelection campaign. So Dole would pick somebody and the phone would ring, hold for leader Dole. Hey, you're doing, you know, fill in the blank, get on it. Don't lose. Click, come over here. And I got him one year. So I got the, come over here. And I went over and he was standing off the Senate floor with a couple of his cronies, Durham Berger, I think Phil Graham or something. And it was like, yeah, Mike here, he's, uh, he's going to get, you know, uh, this, this Senator reelected his problem now. So let's find him. Durham Berger. You check the uh, check the floor, Graham. You check the gym. I'll look behind this tree, uh, this plant, because he was known as kind of a not brilliant guy. I think you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> I and, uh, <laughs> you know, got to find him, get a net. Uh, and it, the the subtext, which he never said, was that this guy was kind of a handful for being a little spacey, um, and which was totally true. And it got a big laugh, but you know, it was very clever. And I remember Werflin after we lost, it, we were in Illinois after losing new hampshire and everything and it was starting to wind down and the senator but he's a fighter and we're all there in a hotel suite and they're bringing in dick werflin who had been reagan's pollster and dole was kind of cranky with him because he had said mr president new hampshire's in the bag allegedly right i mean right. dick's a good guy he's a friend of mine but yeah. so werflin comes in with a big presentation and he's got this like guy with the the flipboards you know it's pre-powerpoint and, and dole's eating kentucky fried chicken which he loved and we're sitting there, and poor Werflin, who was always a very bright guy, was fine, but he, but he kind of would be a little portentous. And he'd say, Senator, we're going to have to turn this campaign around. And I can tell Dole's like, really? You think so, Einstein? You know? And, uh, and he said, so, I've come up, I've, I've drawn, we have a plan, and it's drawn from the, one of the greatest strategists of all time. Admiral Izaruku. Yamamoto, the genius who planned <laughs> Pearl Harbor, first chart. And Dole just on goes and said, Dick, they lost. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you got? You know? uh, oh, boy. No, it was a joy to be around him. That he way. had a, uh, they had a good line. Biden used it today. And I remember hearing this story at the time. Some Republican geniuses came up with the idea in the mid-90s to kind of defund Amtrak. And uh, so there was a big party line push to to get the majority in support of that. And it really came with close vote. And it came down to Dole. And Dole said, nah, I'm not going to do that. And one of these Republicans said, why not? And he said, well, the only way to get Joe Biden out of here at night and send him back home is to keep Amtrak. Amtrak <laughs> well, you know, the truth is, I think in the 70s, when which is when I knew him, that humor worked and that wit worked not just with Republicans. I mean, people like Humphrey and Ted Kennedy and, and McGovern and a whole variety of Democrats. I mean, people that we think of as giants of the Senate. Uh, and Dole was one of them. He was a giant of the Senate. They love sitting around talking to him. That's something else that I think has been lost these days. Right. 
you mentioned Klobuchar and, and uh, Ted Cruz or Mike did sitting together. I don't think that's nearly as common as it was when he was in the Senate, when he was a Senate leader. Right. Well, another thing, you know, structurally, if you think about the House, so they schedule votes in the House where a member can be there from Tuesday to Thursday. So they don't really live in D.C. anymore. They don't live, they don't, their kids don't go to school there, which is fine, but they don't, there's no socializing, really. It's go in, do your, do your political performative art and get out of town. And, you know, it's not conducive to the kind of relationship building that's really necessary to have the trust and all that to, to do what you need. I think one reason Dole was popular among colleagues, too, in the Senate was he always had the right, oh, unpretentious attitude that they're all kind of been on a bit of a joke together because of the absurdity, all the egos and everything. Yeah, I mean, I heard him tell a funny thing about, I think when he was, he probably heard this one from a Mike. He was a young congressman from Russell, Kansas. And he said, my first day, I'm walking around the, you know, statutory hall, looking at all these portraits and all these great people. And I thought, how the hell did a, you know, kid from a nothing small town in Kansas ever get here? Four days later, and for the rest of my career, I was thinking, how did all these other idiots get here? You know, and he had the right kind of a reverent, uh, never pretentious. And I think it just made him. He was kind of a natural, that's why I always wanted to kind of, I never call him, but that Sarge thing, he was always kind of a natural quarterback of, all right, we're in this crazy situation, so here's what we're going to do to get out of it. And uh, that is so critical to a legislature. And now now they just all talk about, you know, what what kind of makeup pad they use on Fox, and they got another hit at 4 o'clock. He was, though, I I mean, he was the happiest he's ever been in his life when he was the leader the first couple of yep. years and they had three or four balls in the air at the same time. And he'd have, right. he'd all have people working on different things in different rooms and he'd go from one meeting to the next, he'd throw in about five words and that would be, that would account for the direction, all the direction he was going to give. And he was stirring the pot on all these conversations at the same time. He loved it. He was so yeah. good at that. I remember the old phrase, what's cooking. Yeah. What's cooking. Yep. You walk yep. through the office every day and, yeah, I mean, you talked about the campaigns being a little dysfunctional. I mean, really, Dole was such a unique guy. He was really his own chief of staff. He was his own, the center of all the energy was him. And he would walk through the office and what's cooking and, you know, where's my amendment? We got this bill coming up and things. It was just political jazz every day. And, you know, always was criticized by the media for not having these great organizational and planning skills and vision and all that. But uh, he was quite effective with his style. It wouldn't work for most people. He also had a spontaneity that right. was totally authentic, even if it could sometimes be in politic. I could think of his description of the pictures of the photo that was taken of Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and Richard Nixon together. Right. And he described it as, hear no evil, see no evil, and evil. <laughs> <laughs> I think that had to come straight out of him. <laughs> now he used to be criticized a lot and there's a great nelson warfield one of his old uh press yeah. guys and one of the fellow consultant has a good piece in new york times i think yesterday about it the press was always like he'd never run a slick campaign you know it, no messaging and all that which was true but the way warfield frames it which i think is right is it was a virtue dole would never do the monkey tricks yeah you know i've had candidates i've had people come to me and say hey tell me what congressional district to move to so i can run there well and believe me i was around and we you could never get 
Bob Dole to do what the campaign people wanted, which is the soundbite of the day, the catchphrase. But uh, uh, Alex Castellanos, who worked with me on the 87 thing, we were partners, once said, you know the thing about this guy? He won't lie. Yeah. And that's true. Their truth was always a part of his equation. He just was not a bullshitter. I've thought often that, uh, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why they managed him that way in 96, but he, 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 was, he wanted to break the shackles all the time. Yeah, yeah, he totally. would sometimes go out and say to the, to the press, oh, don't pay any attention to what I'm saying. We're just trying to get some good video, <laughs> that kind of stuff. They, <laughs> they would laugh. But I've always thought that uh, if he had done what McCain did, when McCain yeah. first ran in 2000, just got on a bus and just just spent all day letting people really see what he was all about. It would have been he would have come across as a totally different. His political persona would have been totally different. I 100 percent agree with that. And I was in both yeah. places. And McCain was four years after 96. Right. And, right. you know, and, and, you know, McCain loved Dole and traveled with him and all that. And I think McCain in 96 ta- saw Dole trying to be himself. Right. You know, it's the same problem Fritz Mondale had and some of these other guys that the 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 cleaned up and branded version of them was not nearly as interested. And people could tell they didn't believe in it either. And right. I think you're right. If Dole had done the grown up going to be me honesty thing, been himself, he would have done a lot better. Yeah. So, you know, I've thought a lot about this when he when he lost in 96. Um, you know, people said, well, he was too old. He wasn't really a very good campaigner. You know, Clinton was too, too good and all of that. And, and yet he still retained the respect of everybody, but now, you know, he's become, I I think he, I think as he aged and as the country changed, I think, I think people kind of, uh, appreciated him even more the last 20 years of his life, if you will, you know, since you mentioned we're talking about the 96 campaign, and I can't do the exact line, but I thought he gave an extraordinary acceptance speech that year. But he had a line in it, and it was something like, if there are those here in this hall or in the Republican Party who don't share a commitment to equality, to ending discrimination, to providing equal justice in America, the doors are right over there, and you can walk out. I thought it was right. a- an amazing moment. It was a kind of a repudiation of dog whistle politics. You know, that's a great point. In fact, I was with him last uh, 10 days, two weeks before he died. And he was actually working on a message that he wanted to deliver about the white supremacists. And he said, you know, they're not, Reagan said, they might be for me, but I'm not for them. Dole said, I want to say something stronger. He put out a final letter. I don't know exactly. I don't have it in front of me, but that's part of what he was trying to say. And and he thinks that the Republican leadership has to be stronger in pushing away the wrong the wrong people. And that's that's going to be a key to their survival. So I remember that convention speech. He was proud of that. Um, yeah. I remember the look. I was filming him from the hero camera position down on the floor, kind of looking up. So I was kind of the closest campaign goon around. Uh, and afterward, he kind of looked down just because he, I could tell he thought I did pretty well. And I gave him a big thumbs up and I, cause he wasn't a natural platform speaker. We right. used to have a joke on the press bus. Doe would be doing his stump in Iowa and he would get into this parallel construction thing and go in a loop. 
And it would be like, you may be a farmer, you may be a mechanic, you may, and he was thinking about what the next thing was. And you may be a veterinary uh, surgical expert. You may be a combine fan belt repairman. You know, he'd start, and it would go on and on and on. (laughs) It just, it wasn't, but when in in, in a small room, like many of these great legislative leaders, he was, uh, he, he was a superpowers. Yeah. But Bob, your, your line about, or, or Mike, your, your line about the convention, or one of you said, I'm, I'm not sure which, Dolak said, gave a different speech in Atlanta in 96. And he just said, I will not rest until discrimination is of all types is ended in this country. And our, I asked him about Recently, we talked about that. You know, where does that come from in you? Where, how does that, mm-hmm. how does a boy from Western Kansas take, come to, to view the world that way? And he, and he said something that I never really had put together. He said, well, you know, I never thought about disabilities. I never thought about uh, racial discrimination when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, we didn't have a big African-American population, for example, out there. And, and then I came back and I was disabled. And I found out I was discriminated against by being disabled. And I started thinking that this is not a good thing. And, I, and, and in his mind over time, it really equated to the same thing. All kinds of discrimination are really, you know, it, it took him back to, to the feelings that he had when he had been discriminated against. So uh, it was it was revolutionary for him to be a congressman from Western Kansas, very conservative Western Kansas and vote for the 64 Civil Rights Act and 65 Voting Rights Rights Act under Lyndon Johnson. And he you should see the letters that are retained at the Dole Institute in, in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, from angry constituents about that. And and you know, I I've read some of those to him recently, and you know, it's it's hard to believe. So people, those were different times, but he always had the right instincts on those issues. So we're we're gonna go to questions in a in a couple of minutes, but what do you think? Dole's legacy in American history will be? Well, I hope it's not the last great legislator that was willing to work across the aisle because I hope there are more to come. But I think certainly, you know, if you look back at the last hundred years, what's the what's the biggest thing that happened? World War II. He was the quintessential product of World War II and its aftermath. And I think his his experiences begat a very sensitive, empathetic politician who wanted to make the world a better place and and did it in a selfless way most of the time. And if you stack his record up and you look at the way he went about doing it, he was really exemplary. And, uh, you know, the whole package, it, it part of so much of his legacy is, is the biography, but it's also the, the whole package of who he was, you know, the the wit, the intelligence, the the integrity, the character, all of those things that we want in our politicians, really, we we had him in Bob Dole, and, and he would be sorely missed. We'll be safe to call him one of the two greatest Republicans of the World War II combat generation, he and George H.W. Bush. Right. And interesting, they were both rivals, and then they grew closer later. You know, they, uh, I think that that is safe to say. And there were plenty of great ones. And, you know, the question now is, can the examination of Bob Dole, we talked about this earlier, can it inspire a rethink? Because I worry kids today, kids today, but young people, they don't have a reference of the politics of Bob Dole. We fought all the time and fought for good causes. 
but the country first was the glue that held it all together. And that can happen again. We just have to choose to reward it in politics. And hearing the stories and the the history of of Bob Doles and, and, and others, I think, I think it is possible. I think we could rotate out of this mess we're in now. And I know Dole would want that. You study history, you study your heroes, and you find that there was a better way. And that's certainly a good start. And I, and I hope. I mean, I, I told Elizabeth and everybody in the Dole family, I'll, I'll do everything I can to make sure that he, his life and his lessons are not forgotten and that people study it, historians, but school children, everybody, that we remember the life of Bob Dole. So I can't resist, before we go to questions, going to the Dole Museum here at my office of campaign oddities. This is the world's only Bob Dole TV dinner tray. (laughs) (laughs) Some some enterprising salesman uh, came into the headquarters with this sample. If we'd only get a million of these, it would turn them all around. So I told him we'd get back to him about the order. Now, I think he might have been a Kansan, so we were afraid if the senator met him, we'd have half a million of these. Anyway, that's the only one. I think hopefully the guy who invented it has the other because I think there were a couple of prototypes. So I, I think you should have given it to Dick Worthland, and that would have been the way to turn things around. <laughs> had an expert, it's definitely superior to the Barry Goldwater seat cover. Which, uh, I gone with it. Oh, that's uh, funny. I had that up on my wall here, and I've been thinking about Dole a lot lately. Uh, we have a, a, a few questions here, and I'll just go through them. Uh, the first one's from Todd O'Connor. And it's for Mike Pettit. Can you describe Senator Dole's relationship with then Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill? And in particular, Senator Dole's role in the appropriations for the big dig in Boston. He had a good relationship with Tip O'Neill, but primarily in the early 80s, it was all centered kind of on tax policy. Dole was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and Dan Rostenkowski was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. In 1982, the Republican, Bob Dole and the and Jim Baker, the chief of staff in the White House and the Treasury Secretary, understood that they had overshot the mark on the 81 tax cuts. So that meant they had given away too much money and there wasn't enough revenue to come in and run the, company, the country. So they, they had to concoct a tax bill to raise some revenue. Uh, the Democrats said, we don't want to have anything to do with that. Revenue bills have to originate in the House. And they said, no, we're not doing it. And so Dole worked with Tip O'Neill and Rostenkowski, and they said, listen, if we can take one of your bills that you've already passed, a revenue bill, and we can attach the tax bill to it, will you, will you run it through the House if we pass it over here? So for about six months that year, uh, you know, the Democrats kind of had the, the control of the, of the dynamic, and, and yet they were very easy to work with. So um, now how that I'd have to have my memory refreshed on the timing of the big dig appropriations. I obviously I remember going through Boston in those years and it seems like it took forever, but I don't remember exactly the years of, you know, when the appropriations went through and all that. So I myself think that it, that's another reflection of the way the Senate and the house used to work. I mean, tip O'Neill Kennedy wanted the money for the big dig. Other people wanted other projects and, They'd sit down, talk it through, and say, well, you can have yours if I can have mine. And in a sense, I suppose, with the infrastructure bill, to some extent, we're going back to that. Uh, But I I don't think it was my own memory as not a particular role that Dole played that went beyond the traditional role that senators and 
members of the House play as they negotiated with each other to do something for their constituents. Right. And I, my recollection is that money, well, I know it was being the big dig started in the 80s. So that means that the, probably the appropriations probably went through before Dole was the leader in 85. And uh, so he wouldn't have been on the appropriations committee. But I, my memory would have to be refreshed on that. Sure. But it'd be the kind of thing he wouldn't object to. You no, know, no, a, a massive public works project in Massachusetts, and we should probably have some kind of public works project or several of them in a lot of places in Kansas. Yeah, though, as a fiscal conservative, he might have said, mm, you know, this thing's a little big, but in principle, it was this kind of thing. In well, you know, the, the big question. So, you know, Reagan came to office and said in his inaugural speech, you know, the problem is the government. And, and Dole remembers, and we talked about it then, I worked for him, and, and, and recently, you know, well, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. The truth is the government does a lot of good for a lot of people. And for example, I came back from World War II, now I was injured along with my colleagues, and they passed the GI Bill. And we all went to college, and, and that created a middle class. And, and that, that, that bill, by the way, didn't pass resoundingly by resounding margins. And, uh, and that changed the country. And so, you know, Dole says, I, you know, I'm, I just don't, you know, I think we just have to be really smart when we talk about those things. The slogans are great, but the fact is the government does a lot of good things. But, but you're right, he was a fiscal conservative and, you know, always worried, you know, back then conservatism meant to him balanced budgets. So, you know, if you, if you wanted to spend the money, you had to pay for it somehow. So we've kind of gotten away from that. Okay, we have question two from Dave Gutman. I think this reflects something we've been talking about, but let me put it to you. Are friendships, genuine friendships in the Senate across the aisle, like Biden with Dole, McCain, and previously Lindsey Graham, still possible in today's environment? I think they're harder. I, I mean, I think that the polarization politics, you guys have all studied it. Everybody knows about it. But I still think they're possible. I mean, we're all humans and we all, everybody has different needs. I don't think they make the effort to, to just get to know each other very well. And I mean, your vignette today about Klobuchar and Cruz is a nice one. You know, they, there used to be the most random friendships that I would observe that people you couldn't imagine of different parties of, you know, even who they were, their personalities didn't fit together and they were friends. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't look like from what I see that 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 exists to the extent that it should. But uh, I, I know it I know it did, you know, through the 80s, pretty consistently. I hear a lot of it from a few senators I'm still in touch with that it still exists. But now it's like an illicit affair. You can't get yeah. caught. Where right. in the old days, you know, it was uh, I am going over to tip O'Neill's poker game or go down to the old board of education in the house. So right. the old drinking room and all that. And it, but now it's. People are worried they're going to have a, a crazy primary challenger from left to right. And the cable news networks are incendiary. Uh, and now, you know, you're a traitor. If you like, I tweeted the thing about, wow, that was really kind of interesting to see Cruz and, and Amy was chatting up. It was like they were old friends, which is not true. But, you know, it was very civil. And the Twitter, of course, exploded as predictably like, how dare she I never trusted her? You know, and now she's a traitor to the cause. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, you'd look at this from 30,000 feet and, you know, this isn't the forum to talk about social media and how that's contributed to all that. But it, 
it um, it you don't have any answers, but you you've got to you've got to acknowledge that that that's helped helped fuel a lot of these divisions and and as you say, you get caught talking to somebody on the other immediately. There's no you know you don't have to wait for the newspaper the next day. Somebody tweets it out right away and. And it kind of paralyzes some some actions that should be. It reminds me. So I, I wrote this uh, or created and co-wrote this pilot for CBS about the Ways and Means Committee in set in Congress. And we sent some Hollywood folks connected to the show out to kind of poke around in Congress. And they're smart people and basically more on the Democratic lefty side. And they walk into one of the House elevators and they find Jim Jordan, who's kind of a thug from Ohio on the Republican side, the guy who never wears a sport jacket. You know, somehow yeah. that constricts his ability to represent the district. And um, I think it was Jim Clyburn, uh, the late great. Uh, uh, and they were talking about some golf thing they were both going to be at. And they gave him all heart attacks. They came back to me. <laughs> I think he's been replaced by a robot. He's getting along. With, you know, it, it was like the, it, it shook their world tremendously. But the minute they're out of the elevator, you know, different direct, it's a, God forbid, a camera. So that's that we have made it poison to do what humans want to do, which is why I think there's hope it could come back. By the way, you could not have showed up in Bob Dole's Senate or George Mitchell's or Kennedy's or any of these people without a, a coat and a tie. You right, would have been yeah. you would have been asked to leave. Right. It's a you know, that's another measure of how the era has changed. There's a, another question here from Diane Wallace, who says, I am a Democrat and a delegate to the California Democratic Party. I've appreciated Senator Dole's civility and consensus building. By the way, Diane, I have to say, civility, yes. Consensus building, yes. Tough politician when he had to be, yes. As a career educator, I was a teacher, principal, and district administrator in Title I schools and school districts. I'm wondering if you have any background information on the school breakfast and lunch program and how Senators Dole and McGovern worked together to get that passed. Mike, you want to go first, then I'll, I'll weigh in on this. Well, you know, a lot of that happened before I worked on the staff, but I certainly know that when I got there, these were pet projects that Dole worked every year to protect. And, you know, there were, particularly in the early 80s, people wanted to cut back those programs. But the genesis of it was the field hearings, My, my as I'm told, that McGovern as the subcommittee chairman had back in the in 73, 74, which resulted, I, I may be wrong, you would you would know more than I would, Bob, but I, didn't the first bill that they did maybe pass in 74, and then there were several other bills that passed, and then it was the matter of the annual appropriations protecting the, you know, protecting the, the, the money? Well, first of all, all of this, or a lot of this started under President Kennedy, who they used to give out boxes of surplus food so people would get four pounds of cheese or something, right. whatever was sitting around. And they piloted the food stamp program so that people could go shop for their groceries and use food stamps. By the early 70s, it actually existed, and there was a lot of resistance to it among conservatives. And you're right, I think those field hearings, and it was before I was there, but I think those field hearings play, although I was close to McGovern at the time, those field hearings played a big role in not only protecting food stamps, uh, but in advancing things like the women, infant, children uh, feeding program, uh, which meant that, you know, if you had a, you had a child and you didn't have money, somehow or there was going to, there was going to be food there. And it was a really critical thing. And what amazed me over and over and over again in the time I dealt with Senator Dole on this was how strongly he felt about it. 
you say he started off as a skeptic, but boy, he became a convert. Well, I, I now remember something because we, t- we talked about it. I remember asking him that question. And he said that while there had been anecdotal evidence about the way in which lack of nutrition affected brain development of children of certain ages, he thought the data got so good and was overwhelming by the time he really got into the issue. And he said, once I really understood the data and what was behind it, he said, it just became a, a slam dunk for me as a cause. It was an issue of basic fairness. And, you know, if you're, if you're going to handicap somebody right out of the gate when they're three, four, five, six years old and their brain doesn't develop and they're, you know, they the chasm between their development and somebody else's that has normal privileges is just, it's just, you know, heartbreaking. And look, he wanted to be the Republican nominee for president. He wanted to be the majority leader in the Senate, but he had to take on some people in his own party on these issues because there were folks in the Republican party who wanted to get rid of these programs or at least slash them or put work requirements on them, all sorts of of, uh, proposals, which he resisted, McGovern resisted, and most Democrats resisted. Right. Uh, so he, in a way, he, he, I think he took some risks doing this. They weren't risks to him. He really, once he became committed to the cause, he loved it. If, if he was perceived as taking a risk to defend those programs, he loved that. He just felt like, well, that's who I am and I'm not changing. I'm authentic and like it or don't like it, but that's, we're not wavering on this. Later in life, McGovern became more politically conservative, so I give Dole credit for that. And uh, <laughs> Diane, as well, he got a small business. He had this in, and he's like, all this paperwork. What was I voting for? <laughs> so Diane, as a teacher, I'll give you one Bob Dole teacher story because I spent so much time in Russell filming everybody. I filmed one of his old teachers. I don't remember her name. And I thought this will be great, you know, because she was right out of Kansas Central casting, twinkle in the eye, elderly woman at that point. But she was very game to, oh, Bob was so charming. He was, you know, a great athlete. People looked up to him. Yeah. So, you know, quite smart, too. Probably loved schoolwork. And she kind of stopped and go, well, actually, Arlen was the smart one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because Senator Arlen Specter came from that same small town. And if you listen to the accents they have, that Kansas twang, Arlen has the same accent as Bob Dole. Right. So uh, we couldn't quite get her on the campaign wagon, though she told me she was going to vote for him without hesitation. I have in my possession Bob Dole's IQ test when he went to officer candidate school. And uh, it's never been written about anywhere. And I found it. And so he would have been considered surprised. It would surprise a lot of people to know that he would have been considered one of the very brightest presidents had he been elected. Oh, I believe that. I mean, seeing him in operation. I give you guys one more chance to sum this up. Say how you, Mike, how do you come out of today feeling? Well, he had such a full and impressive life, but I was still sad uh, just because what he stands for is what the country needs. And we're not making them like that anymore. We, we damn well better learn how to. Um, yeah. I've worked for a lot of politicians. I've seen them behind the scenes, who they really are. And those humanity and, and just so much about him always really impressed me. And I'm glad I worked for him early in my career uh, because he was a very inspirational guy to work for. Well, I would echo all of that, Mike, and, and also say on a personal level, he still had things he wanted to say and do even at the age of 98. And, uh, you know, we, we talked uh, last time I was with him. I asked him, we talked about the line. Uh, pay no worship to the garish son. 
that uh, Bobby Kennedy used at the 64 Democratic Convention to talk about Lyndon Johnson. And one of the McCain daughters talked about at the McCain funeral. Well, Gary's son is, is the, uh, without mentioning his name, we knew, we know what that represents in politics today. So we, we were talking about, you know, using some, some things like that to say that the fever has to break in terms yeah. of the Republican party and how to, how to say it, how to do it, uh, you know, without being personal about it. So uh, I think if we, you know, time may, may, this may work its way out in time, but uh, uh, it's uh, today was a day for, to remember a time when things were better and the, and the government worked better and people got along and they, and they did the right thing country over party more often than not and more often than they do today. And it, it can be that again if we choose to have it. Quick final thing for you, Mike, before we wrap up. We're about out of time. Tell us a little bit about the Dole Institute. Maybe there's an online place people can go to learn more about the senator. I always recommend the Richard Ben Kramer book, What It Takes. Dole's own book about his wartime experience, One Soldier's Story, is excellent. But uh, you're very involved in the Dole Institute uh, out there uh, in Lawrence. So how, how can people learn more and, and connect with the Institute? Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, I spent some time with the chancellor of the university today talking about it. Both Bob and Elizabeth Dole have donated all their papers to the Institute at the, on the campus of the University of Kansas. Almost all of it is available online. I have researched and found things that I became mesmerized with. All of Bob Dole's personal letters that he wrote from uh, stationed abroad during World War II before he was injured are there. And I mean, it just, it's just amazing to read this, these original, uh, original historical documents. Um, the stuff in there in both of their records over time is treasure trove for anybody that's interested in understanding politics, people, and, and history. And so, um, I'm, I'm really happy to hear what you guys are doing, Bob. I, I have to tell you, I've been, I've spent the last day with Kim Wells and we had dinner last night. He told me a lot about what about what you guys are doing at the institute. I I've, I've got to get up there and, and see you. I live down in Orange County, so I'll I'll come up and take a look around one of these days. But uh, oh, we'd love to have you. Please come up. We really welcome you. And Kim Wells did yeoman's work on terms of all these nutrition programs in the 1970s. It, right. One of the nicest and brightest people I've ever met. He's the one that got me hired there in the first place. After <laughs> kind of after he was leaving. So yeah. So. On behalf of the center, on behalf of Mike Murphy and myself, I want to thank you, Mike Pettit. I want to thank all of you, because, Mike, your reminiscences today were very, very powerful, and I'm glad you were able to be at the funeral. I made a mistake at the beginning. I said you were coming from the Capitol. You were obviously coming from the cathedral. And I want to thank all of you in our audience who have been with us today and been with us all through the semester and all through this very fraught period in America. We'll see you in January. This is our last Bully Pulpit podcast of 2021. So we'll see you next month and have a great holiday season. Yeah, have a tremendous holiday. And Mike, thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on the Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future, that's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.